you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. Today we're picking back up with our study entitled God's Redeeming Love, looking at the book of Ruth. And if you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember we looked at the first five verses of the book of Ruth, and we encounter a man named Elimelech and his family, Naomi, his wife, his two sons, Machlon and Kilion. They live in Bethlehem, which remember means the house of bread. And in the house of bread, there is no bread. There's a famine. In response to that, they leave to go to Moab. It's not a good decision. Leaving God's place, going to a foreign land. Elimelech dies, Machlon and Kilion die, and Naomi hits rock bottom. Well, today we're going to see the response to rock bottom. Before I read this text, let me pray and ask for the Lord's blessing and his help. Gracious God, you've told us that your word is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of joint and marrow of soul and spirit, and discerning the intentions of the heart. Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word, Ruth 1, starting in verse 6. Then she, that's Naomi, arose with her daughter-in-law, daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. In the middle of the 1700s, a young man desirous of entering pastoral ministry was a student at Yale University. He was a good student. And after several years, he was close to graduation. 
One day, he was talking to some of his friends, and he made an offhanded comment about one of the professors. That man is about as spiritual as the chair I'm sitting in. The student was expelled from Yale. It was a sinful thing to say. And he later repented to the professor. However, he was never readmitted to Yale. It was probably the darkest point in this man's life. He hit rock bottom, you might say. But God was not done with him. His story was one of redemption. The man's name was David Brainerd. And maybe you've never heard of David Brainerd, but David became a missionary to the Native Americans in the Northeast, and the Lord used him to bring thousands of people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, here in the first chapter of Ruth, we have three women who have hit rock bottom, like David Brainerd. Naomi has lost her husband and both of her sons. Ruth and Orpah have both lost their husbands. They're destined to be destitute, we might assume. Moreover, the family of Elimelech is going to go extinct. What shame for this family in an honor-shame society. But their story is not over. Instead, there's hope in this situation. Why? Because God does something. Look at verse 6. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This is the first time in the book of Ruth that God is explicitly mentioned. Now we saw two weeks ago those first five verses. God is absolutely at work. We don't see it mentioned directly, but now we do. In his grace and kindness, the Lord brought an end to the famine in Bethlehem. And in his kindness, he brought word of his relief to the fields of Moab. You see, the shelves of Bethlehem have been restocked. God has done a great work, and he does such a great work that he even tells somehow Naomi and her family in Moab. How does word get there? We don't know, but God brings word. And so now at rock bottom, and yet with a glimpse of God at work, these three women are faced with a choice. Are they going to stay in Moab, or are they going to go back to Bethlehem? In this passage, we find two contrasting responses. There's the practical response, and then there's the faith response. We find these three individuals responding to rock bottom, but really these truths and these responses fit to any circumstance you might find yourself in. And so I believe as we examine these two responses as we walk through this passage, there's much that you and I can glean about how we approach life in a broken, fallen, and sinful world. We see in verse 7 that Naomi and her two daughters-in-law set off for Bethlehem. At some point along the journey, Naomi has second thoughts about them coming with her. She tells them to return. Perhaps this was that first night. They're stopping to rest, and they gather together, and, and maybe Naomi talks to them then. Maybe this is at the border of Moab, a logical place to have a conversation. Who knows exactly? The text doesn't tell us. 
But Naomi says, no, go back. And notice what she says. She says, return to your mother's house. Now, this is an interesting statement, given that this is a patriarchal society. Why not go back to your father's house? Your father can protect you and provide for you. Well, in various places in the Old Testament, we find mother's house in a reference to marriage. And so really what Naomi is saying is, hey, go back home temporarily so that you can find another husband and you'll find blessing there. Naomi then prays a blessing of sorts over them. And scholars debate, how should we understand Naomi's words here and her actions? Is, is this positive or is it not? I think it's likely that what she says here is kind of a common phrase that's used as part of a farewell statement this time. It's not as spiritual as we might think. And we'll see why in a few minutes. At first, Ruth and Orpah say, no, we'll go with you back to your people. But Naomi is persistent. She urges them to go back, and we'll see what she says in a few minutes. Orpah gives in. She returns back. But Ruth is persistent. She doesn't budge. So Naomi relents. What we see in Naomi's words and actions is what I've called the practical response. In some ways, for her going back to Bethlehem is really just practical. There's bread there now. Go back. And as we'll see next week, her view of God really is not very strong at this point. Moreover, what she tells her daughters-in-law to do is nothing short of just mere practical advice. Sounds good on the surface, but as we dig into it, we'll see it's not as good of advice as we might hope. There's a couple of key things we need to see about this practical response to hitting rock bottom. First is that this practical response relies on human logic. Now, there's nothing wrong with human logic to a certain degree. God has given us minds to think, and we should use them. But we have to remember that our minds are impacted by sin more than we realize. We don't think as clearly as we would hope to. Moreover, often what seems logical to us is stands in opposition to what God desires for his people. Think about Naomi's words to her daughters-in-law. What does she tell them? She says, go home. I can't provide for you. It doesn't make sense for you to come with me back to Bethlehem. A better life is found in Moab. And then in verses 11 through 13, it's even more practical advice. She basically says, look, ladies, there's no one else for you to marry in my family. Even if I got married tonight and got pregnant and would have sons in nine months, are you going to wait 20 plus years until they're of age to be married? No, that's ridiculous. By that point, you'll be beyond childbearing years. Uh, that doesn't make sense. No, go back home. That is so much more practical. Well, why does Naomi mention having sons? I mean, to us here in 21st century America, it's like, that's strange. No, I'm not going to marry my half-brother. What is this? Like, no. Well, what she's referencing is the Leveret laws found in the Old Testament. We find this explained in Deuteronomy 25, where it says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. 
And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of her, his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. In other words, a brother or close relative could marry a widow and perpetuate the line of his brother. But Naomi says, I don't, I don't have that option. Mahlon and Kilion are my only two sons. There's not another child that I have for you. And the irony, as we'll see in the book later, is that there was an option. Did Naomi not think that was a possibility? Did she not think that God could provide miraculously? As we read in our first reading about he provided for Sarah, a child in her old age. No, Naomi relies on human logic and she says, go home. Friends, so often you and I rely on human logic. We think about things from our perspective and we just want to be practical. The problem with our thinking and our knowledge is that it's limited. Relying solely on human logic prevents us from seeing what God is up to, being a part of what he's doing. Human logic would deny that God could save Israel with Gideon and 300 men in Judges 6. Human logic would deny that a young David could defeat the giant Goliath. Human logic would deny that the Virgin Mary could be pregnant with a Christ child. Human logic often keeps you and I from living as God wants us to. It's not logical to tithe 10% of my income. How am I going to live? It's not logical to attend worship every Sunday. I'm too busy. It's not logical to be a missionary. That's too hard. It's not logical to trust God after the death of my spouse, my child, my grandchild. I gotta dare to believe that God is still good. What is it that doesn't seem logical to you that God might be calling you to believe or do? The second reality of the practical way is that it's convenient. It's the easy way. Telling Ruth and Orpah to go home is the convenient thing for them and for Naomi. Going to Bethlehem would have been very, very hard for these two Moabite women. They would have been social outcasts. Why go put yourself through that? Going home was much more convenient. There's a level of convenience for Naomi. One person going back versus three means that's two less mouths to feed. It's a little bit easier. It's more convenient. And she's not going to have to answer questions about why she let her sons marry Moabites. It's convenient for her. Friends, the practical option is often the convenient one. And you and I fall into this trap on a regular basis. It's more convenient for us to stay home and watch church online rather than come to worship. It's more convenient to read a quick verse and pray rather than gather with believers on Wednesday night or come to Sunday school, go to a Bible study. Parents, it might be more convenient for you to think, oh, your Sunday school teachers and the Wednesday night teachers, they're the ones that can teach my children instead of reading the Bible with your kids and practicing family worship. Where are you prone to prioritize convenience in your life? Convenience isn't all bad, but at times it causes us to miss what God is really doing. Finally, the practical response ignores spiritual considerations. The biggest problem with, Ru- or with Naomi pleading for Ruth and Orpah to return home is the spiritual implications. 
Verse 15, we read, And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Remember, the Moabites worshipped the pagan god Chemosh, as well as other pagan deities. While it was practical for them to go home, it was spiritual disaster. Naomi prays that they would find rest in their, in their husband's home. And the problem is that there's no rest outside of the Lord God and his people. She's praying for something that doesn't make sense. Yes, going back to Moab was logical and convenient, but it was spiritually detrimental. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 13, For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The easy way is easy for a reason. It's smooth, lots of people going that way. But it ends in eternal destruction. It may be more logical and convenient to go along with the beliefs of our world, but the danger is that it will very well may lead us away from God. When you think about responding to the challenges in life, do you contemplate the spiritual impact of the choices you're about to make? When you offer advice to your children or grandchildren, do your words match the words of God in Scripture? Brothers and sisters, the spiritual ramifications of our decisions are crucial. Eternal life and death are at stake. We must not settle for the practical response. Following Jesus isn't always practical. In some ways, being a Christian is the easiest thing, for Christ did what you couldn't do because he died on the cross. He fully paid the debt for your sin. And yet at the same time, it's also one of the hardest things, because if Jesus has paid it all, there's nothing that he cannot ask of you to do. So we're to die to ourselves and our sinful desires and live for him. Well, this leads us to the other response. We had the practical response, and now I've entitled the second response, the faith response. This is the response of Ruth the Moabite. You know, there's a lot of irony in the book of Ruth, and we see some irony here. Naomi the Israelite responds very practically, contrary to the word of God, and Ruth the Moabite responds with faith. Yet God often works in mysterious ways, does he not? Ruth's response of faith is found in verses 16 and 17. I want you to look with me there. It's it's such an important statement. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth's words here are beautiful. They're poetic. They're heartfelt and they're packed full of truth. No wonder we frame them and hang them on our walls. Perhaps you've heard these words read at a wedding. There's nothing wrong with that per se. It's a beautiful statement of commitment. Yet most brides probably forget that these are words from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. But they're still wonderful words. And this faith response is one that we can learn a lot from. In Hebrew narrative, if a writer wants to emphasize something, he'll put it in the middle, and there'll be stuff leading up to it and stuff afterwards that kind of support it, kind of crescendos, so to speak. 
The very end of verse 16, that's what the author does. Right smack dab in the middle of Ruth's confession are the words, your God, my God. And in English, it's your people will be my people or shall be my people, your God, my God. It sounds kind of future, but really her words are present tense. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. This is nothing short of a public profession of faith. It's the very thing our communicants did just a few minutes ago before the elders. Sinclair Ferguson summarizes Ruth's words this way. Listen, I have been converted. Stop urging me to go back. Did you hear me? I have been converted. Her response of faith begins with love for God. Her devotion in these words is not merely to Naomi, her mother-in-law, but it's ultimately to her God. And it's because of her devotion to God that she is devoted to her mother-in-law. She's declaring that God is her first priority. In order to do this, she turned her back on Moab and all that goes with it. This includes her family, her culture, and most importantly, her gods, the god Chemosh. Think of Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Have you turned from the gods of this world and to the living and true God? Have you left behind the life of sin and devoted yourself to Christ? That's what God desires. That's what Ruth did. Have you done that? Ruth's words here in this confession of faith of sorts are quite theological. She uses the term Yahweh. It's the personal covenantal name of God. In Leviticus 26, 12, the Lord says, And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. She's personalizing these words. She's saying, in effect, the God who devoted himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now my God, too. She's been converted to faith in the Lord, and now she has a deep abiding love for him. Remember, what God desires most from his people is not external action or intellectual assent. No, he wants love. Deuteronomy 6, we find the words of the Shema, what Israelites would repeat multiple times every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Do you love the Lord your God? You see, it's not just about showing up to church or reading the Bible or praying or giving money to those in need or to the church or being a good person. No, you can do all those things and just go through the motions and your heart be far from God. You know what? God can't stand that. What he wants is your love. He wants your heart. He wants your affections. Certainly love translates into obedience, but it starts with our heart and then it overflows into our actions. When you experience God's redeeming love, you can't help but respond with love to him. You know, what's amazing about Ruth's confession here is that her experience of God's love is really limited at this point. She'll experience more as time goes on. And on top of that, she's still at rock bottom. Her situation hasn't changed. It's not that God has provided for her and everything's perfect and she knows that everything's going to be great. She doesn't know that. 
but she still devotes herself to the Lord. Friends, the faith response begins with love for God. Can you devote yourself to the Lord with love even if God hasn't changed your circumstances? The faith response continues with love for God's people. Ruth says, your people are my people. Moreover, she commits herself to Naomi. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die. This is a commitment to death. What does Ruth know about these people, the Israelites, at this point? Very little, right? She just knows the family of Elimelech. And they haven't been the greatest witnesses to God, have they? I mean, Naomi hasn't been that kind to her. She encouraged her to go home instead of staying with her. On top of that, following her impassioned speech about going to Bethlehem, Naomi says nothing. Nada, man, I'm so glad you've trusted in the Lord. Man, I'm so thankful you're coming with me. Just silence. And it's hard to interpret silence, but it doesn't seem good. In verse 19, once back in Bethlehem, the women don't even acknowledge Ruth. How's that for a first impression? All that to say, the people of God haven't really shown the love of God to Ruth, but she shows love for them. Brothers and sisters, the response of faith calls you and I to love the people of God. The Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christianity. The Westminster Confession of Faith goes so far as to say that outside the church, there's no ordinary means of salvation The covenant people of God are a group. And so we're called to love the group. And we are to love not just the ones who look like us or dress like us or think like us or the same political party as us. No, there's differences among us. But there's to be a love for the people of God that pervades all of us. Is that true of you? Do you have a genuine love for the people of God? For the people of this church? Well, the people of other Bible-believing churches. The faith response involves love for God, the love for the people of God, and finally, love for the lost. In many ways, Naomi has wandered far from God. The trials she has endured have impacted her in such a way that she has hardened her heart to God. This is sad. But God uses Ruth the Moabite to model faith and love. Ruth's genuine love for her mother-in-law is used by God to help bring Naomi back to a place of faith and love and devotion to the Lord. And the same is true for us. You and I have a call from God to love the lost, those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Who can you pray for that God would bring them to faith? With whom can you share the hope of the gospel? Oftentimes we find ourselves at a crossroads. Whether it's truly rock bottom like Ruth and Naomi or not, we all come to times where we're faced with a choice. Are we going to have the practical response or the faith response? The good news is that our only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the crossroads, he chose faith. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he could have made the practical choice and abandoned the mission of the cross, but he didn't. His faith kept him on the mission. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the bread of life, as we see in John 6, greater than the bread of Bethlehem or the bread of Moab. In 1882, a pastor in Scotland sat down and wrote a hymn. This man was incredibly brilliant. 
20 years prior, he was engaged to be married, but he started to go blind. And his fiance could not imagine being married to a blind man, and so she called off the wedding. After completely losing his sight, the man moved in with his sister, who cared for him for the next 20 years. And she eventually got engaged and was set to be married. On the eve of his sister's wedding, with the reality sinking in that his primary caregiver was about to be devoted to somebody else, with no idea of how he was going to make it through life, living in the 1800s as a blind man, he sat down and wrote a hymn in five minutes. A man's name was George Matheson. And the hymn was the one we sang at the beginning of our service. O love that will not let me go. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean's depths its flow may richer, fuller be. And then verse 3, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God's redeeming love will never let us go. God never let go of Naomi. He never let go of Ruth. If your faith is in Christ, then he will never let go of you. Even if you make a mess of your life, like David Brainer and Ruth and Naomi in some ways. Even if you hit rock bottom like George Matheson of no fault of your own, God's redeeming love is still there. So respond to whatever may come with faith. God's redeeming love is worth it. Let us pray.